to Episode 7 of Out of the Ether. I am Tim Brick, and still your incredible host for this amazing podcast. If I sound a little excited this week, it's because I am. Uh, we are joined by Charlie Feldman, a recently retired uh, Vice President of Creative for BMI in New York. And Charlie joined BMI in 1988, and during his time there, he supported and worked with many songwriters, uh, including the Neville Brothers, James Brown, Carole King, Greg Allman, Rihanna, and Niall Rogers, just to name a few. His many accomplishments include helping to establish BMI's presence at South by Southwest and Lollapalooza. And he was also BMI's liaison with uh, many of the industry's most important organizations. Uh, he served as a trustee and past president of the New York Chamber, or New York Chapter of the Recording Academy, and a board member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Charlie began his career in the music industry as a songwriter with Muscle Shoals Music in the early 70s and he later served as the Vice President of EMI Nashville before joining BMI. His professional memberships also include the Country Music Association, the Academy of Country Music, and the Nashville Songwriters Association. And I need to add that after having spent over two hours uh, interviewing, and, and really, I don't know as much an interview as just a conversation with Charlie for two hours, uh, he is truly one of the nicest people you will ever meet. So that said, we'll be back in a moment with Charlie Feldman. Hi, Charlie. How you doing? I'm doing great today and uh, had my second COVID shot. I'm at the stage of life where that's an important thing. <laughs> I know a lot of people in my life would agree with you that that's important. Yeah. I, I took the other route. I just got COVID. <laughs> which oh, I boy. Do, I don't uh, recommend to anybody. Before we, we really hop in the podcast, I got two things, Charlie, um, that I wanted to bring up. First of all, thank you very much for being so accommodating. You're in uh, New York and I'm in Arizona, so we had to do it remotely. And that seems like a really simple thing to do. <laughs> but when you consider all everything that could possibly go wrong, you're trying to mitigate all those eventualities, uh, it became more complicated than I thought. But I really appreciate you uh, rescheduling and being patient with me. So first of all, thank you for that and for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me to do this. It's always fun to talk about one of my main passions in my life and my whole existence, which is music. You and me both. And, and then the next thing, too, I know you're an Alabama guy, so I want to say roll tide. Congratulations, 13-0. and 0, Great season. Or at least I'm and assuming you're a it's remarkable that the, the basketball team is doing really well this year, too. I think they're in the top 10 right now. But they're, you know, football I'm always following, but basketball's doing good also. Yeah, well, I'm a huge NCAA uh, college football fan. Uh, University of Iowa, because I grew up in Des Moines, so I'm an Iowa Hawkeye fan. But uh, I, I do I've have to. I've been there. To I've Iowa? Been to Des Moines. I've been to Des Moines. Were you there intentionally? Um, I was there as a sales trainee when I was about 22 years old, and I drove all the way from Chicago down through Nebraska and Iowa and called on mom and pops that were selling infants and children's wear. So you're so that I'm assuming 22. That was right out of college. That was the first job out of college. It was right right out of college. I, I think I I gradu I stayed out a semester, so I graduated a little late. Um, I think I ended up graduating in 71 instead of 70 because I stayed out and went to Muscle Shoals to write songs, and um, and then I hung around Birmingham and worked some at my parents' jewelry store, and then in August of 71, I went right to Chicago to the Merchandise Mart 
and then the guy that was training me, we got in his car and drove down through the the middle of America and oh yeah, a lot of flatlands, a lot of corn. Oh, and, uh, a lot, corn as far as you can see off the interstate. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was pretty amazing, as yeah. I recall. What was, we're going to shift gears here now, we'll get into music. What was the first moment, or do you remember that first moment when you thought, I want to be a musician? I'm not sure exactly the word musician would be what I, I would call it, but the the first time I really remember connecting with loving music, I think I was... Well, I was very young because my father was a piano player. Oh, okay. And he was really good. And we, he had a, a baby grand piano, which I have now. And uh, my dad would play classical and popular music. And I was very little. And I just loved what he was doing. I loved the sound of the keyboard, the sound of the acoustic instrument. But when I really connected with recorded music, I think I was seven or eight and, and I can, well, I was probably younger. I was probably six. That's when Elvis really started proliferating mm. when I was about six or seven. And I loved the simplicity, but the energy and the, the excitement of some of his records. And then Ray Charles really got to me and Buddy Holly. I can vividly remember listening to Buddy Holly's albums at my cousin's house, and I just loved the songs and the melody. Yeah. And then when Ray Charles came out with What I Say, I was about nine years old. Uh-huh. This is kind of a funny story. It's probably more than you want to hear, but no, go my for sister it. is six years older than I am, so if I was nine or ten, she was 15 or 16, and she'd have her girlfriends come over, and we had this record player that you'd put a, a spindle on it to play 45s and we had the single what i say the a side was part a and the b side was b okay and uh, i remember you'd flip over the single and the beginning was what i say yeah. but she, i used to get the the extra uh 45 spindle and pretend it was a microphone and i'd i'd stand there and pantomime to ray charles and when my sister would have her girlfriends come up she'd say charles do ray charles <laughs> and i'd put on the single with one 45 spindle on the motorola and yeah. i would i would pantomime to it and dance around and i just went nuts i loved it so it sounded like you were born to be a performer then well, if I was really born to be a performer, I'd be performing and I would have made my living at it. You know, I, I wasn't born to be one, but I guess I had fun, you know. And, and um, Well, you know, real quick, so. it's, it's interesting you say that. Um, I, I remember years ago, so I've been a musician, I was probably 12 when I started playing, but uh, I was living in London and I was coming down into the tubes. You know, they have those massive escalators that go on for like 300 oh, yeah. yards and you're coming down. So I got on the top of the escalator and, you know, there's all the buskers and there, there's all kinds of guys that play. And I think they, I don't know if they pay a permit fee for really good spots, but this was in Leicester Square. And I'm at the top of the escalator and I hear a saxophone and a drum and that's it. And there's the two of them. And so because that escalator so long, I had like a few minutes, I think I was on it. And I'm listening to these guys intently. And I'm like, my God, that may be the best saxophone player I've ever heard in my life. Yet 
No one knows who he is. And this is the extent of his career. Now, maybe he did go on after that. I don't know. He may have played a bunch of albums or something. Um, but I remember that moment, it, it was the first time it really hit me that it, talent alone isn't enough to determine success in the music industry. I mean, there's, it seems like it, it's definitely very important. Don't get me wrong. I'm certainly not diminishing it. But there's so many other things that come into it. You know, I think there's so many different levels and elements. And first of all, what is success? You know, um, I think the simplest way that I've always come to define musical success is, and there's all levels of it, but being able to make a living in music, whether yeah. you're you're making music. You know, I think the simple answer to, to musical success is everybody wants to be a star. Right. But, you know, it is, it's a very, very elite group of people that achieve a plus plus success as an artist. Yeah. But there are many successful artists that make a living at it and enjoy what they're doing. They may be less recognizable and more anonymous, but that's what I mean by levels of success. You know, we could talk about Taylor Swift. I, I remember meeting Taylor when she was 14. She, she actually came to our creative office in New York while she was still living in Pennsylvania. I did not bring her into BMI. One of the people I had hired and who was on my team knew a guy in Philly that was acting as her manager at the time, which was short-lived, but he engaged with that manager and had Taylor come to the BMI office. I, I think I must have been out of town and he, my, my buddy, J.W. Johnson, who's now a manager of really great producers, he lives in New Jersey, but works in the greater New York area, he signed Taylor Swift to BMI. So about a year later, I happened to be in Nashville during Country Music Week, and I bumped into a buddy of mine who was the CEO of the distribution wing of, of Universal Music. Okay. His name is Jim Urie, and he's a fantastic guy, very charismatic guy. And Taylor had just had this big record, Teardrops, on my guitar. And I, I went up to him and, and I said, Jim, this guy, Mike Borchetta, who signed Taylor to his record label, Big Machine, I said, is this guy a genius or what? And he said, Borchette, Scott Borchetta is his name. Mike was his father, and he was a promotion guy. He said, Scott Borchetta is a really good record man, but I have to tell you, Charlie, Taylor Swift is the hardest working artist I've ever been around. And he represents Island, or he, uh -huh. he was over the distribution of Island Records, MCA Records, Republic Records, Def Jam, all the interscope all these big labels and he said this woman who was at that time going on 15 years old he said if she's not working writing songs she's up in the morning on the phone talking to disc jockeys all over america or she's out promoting or she's talking to her fans he said she's the hardest working artist i've ever been around the point i'm trying to make is there are many people that say they're artists and they want to be artists. I mean, you take all these A-plus artists, um, every one of them 
not only are they intuitive, do they have a healthy obsession, but they're the hardest working people out there. And, and most people say they're an artist, but they're not really working that hard at it. Right. And you, you, to compete, you have to be real strong and really hard working and you have to be smart, intelligent, because most, most great artists, they are driving the bus. Mm -hmm. They're not a passenger sitting three seats back in the bus. And mo most people that, that want to be a hit artist, they don't know how to drive the bus. Well, it, it, two things come to mind listening to you, and I agree with you 100%. Um, there, and there really is no substitute for hard work. <laughs> Although I, I've found a lot of times in my life people maybe look at something and they think the end result is where you started. Um, and it's not. It's the end result usually after a lot of hard work. There was a, a song years ago I was co-writing with somebody, and one of the lines I wrote was, an overnight success after 40 years of stress. <laughs> you know, it's, it takes a long time to get there. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, wow, look at this person. They came out of nowhere. And now they're a big star. And it's like, well, no, they've been working on this for 40 years or 20 years. Or, or Taylor was a lot younger. So, uh, And mo most of these people, I don't think it's about making money. I think it's right. they're driven to be who they are. Lady Gaga, a lady that worked on my team and now she's heading up the contemporary music. I'm retired from BMI. I just finished my consultancy. So I'm, I'm a free man, <laughs> but the lady that worked with me for years, who's a great lady and passionate about music. She was really the, I didn't, I didn't know about Lady Gaga until she did a showcase for us when she was 17 and she had black hair. And uh, this woman, Samantha Cox, who is still at BMI doing great, she championed her. That's how I came to know about Lady Gaga. And now, Charlie, Lady Gaga real quick, was the hardest working young lady I've ever seen. What? She and she uh, in the same class. I'm, yeah, no, I'm sorry to interrupt. I just, and I want you to continue on Lady Gaga. I just want to ask you real quick. So when you saw her at 17 in a showcase, did you know right then, like, wow, this, she's special? I knew she was special. I can't tell you one song that she performed. At that time, she was playing a, a keyboard, a, 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 a synthesized piano, okay. and she had a woman named Lady Starlight who was a DJ. And Gaga had on a, a black and gold pinstripe leotard. Very charismatic, very great personality, great uh, instrumental chops and obviously had a great vocal instrument. Yeah. But she was more to me at that time of a personality and she wanted to engage with all the people around her. And she was, she was hungry to, to please everybody. And I don't mean be a servant. I mean, yeah. she wanted to entertain everybody and she was very aware of, of the fans and she was a just had a great personality i mean to me her personality at that time and maybe because she had black hair it reminded me of liza minnelli meets oh, wow. lucille ball meets um <laughs> you know she wasn't silly funny yeah but she was just charming and you know that's the last time i've been around her in person I, i've seen her 
in a crowd of 70,000 people. Yeah. But when she was just starting at this, or not just starting, but she wasn't famous. Right. Yeah. Uh, and what an interesting combination. He's said Lucille Ball and Liza Minnelli. And I thought immediately when you said that, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the impression I get when I see her in interviews, you know? With She's, a little bit of Bette yeah. Midler thrown in. You yeah. know, Bette Midler's a very charming, funny lady. Yeah, well, exactly, because she's got, um, there's there's interviews I've seen her, I'm like, wow, she's very quick-witted, you know, that's why I guess when you said Lucille Ball, I was thinking about that, but yeah, incredibly charming, she's one of my favorite artists, her, for, for female artists, the other one I love is Pink, I don't know if you ever got a chance to meet her or work with her. I have met Pink, and uh, I have not had conversations with her, but what I got from Pink, well, what I did was, at, at the Songwriters Hall of Fame, she tributed her publisher, a guy named Martin Bandier, who had tremendous success. He was the chairman of Sony ATV Music Publishing until about a year ago, and and he retired. To to now he's building his own publishing company, but he's been around for years. And she got up on the stage with her guitar player to tribute Marty, and she sang a guitar vocal. Her guitar player played, and she sang. Me and Bobby McGee, which was one of the premier songs in Marty's catalog of hits. And she sat on a stool and sang it, and it was as large as being at a big concert with a full-blown band. She was amazing. And then I, my job was to go to the wings and escort her. We were seated at the same table that night. And I escorted her back to the table. And what I got from her is a very down-to-earth, humble person, actually. Yeah. No airs, no no attitude, just a very straightforward, good person. You know, I, I can't tell how happy I am to hear that because I really like her a lot. It's another person I've seen interviews and, and some different things um, outside of just her music, which I really enjoy. Um, it's always a big disappointment. I, I was doing an interview yesterday with somebody, and they were talking about a, a, a musician, songwriter, very, very famous, who I really, really like. Um, by the time I got out the interview, I had to kind of second-guess my, <laughs> my ability to judge character. I want to circle back. Um, I know uh -huh. you were a songwriter with Muscle Shoals Music. Um, did you ever get to – did you work in the studio? Uh, I, I never recorded in that studio. Uh, it was when I was 19 years old, and I did audition in the control room for Ahmed Erdogan. Oh, wow. <laughs> the guy that was the legendary owner of Atlantic Records. Um, but I never did record with that great rhythm section. I was close to him, and I'm still good buddies. Bless his heart, Jimmy Johnson, we lost him. David Hood, I'm still good buddies with David. I knew Jimmy well, and we used to talk periodically, but uh, I was it was such an entry level for me, and the two brothers that I went up there with, they were, at that time, they were more adept at navigating the waters up there than I was, and I was shy, and I wasn't um, confident like they were. Okay. So I never, they, they ended up, being able to do things there. I left and went back to college and graduated, but uh, we did collaborate and we wrote songs together and I did get to meet some people while I was up there. I was only up there for, I think, three and a half months. I stayed out of college my last semester of college. That's why I graduated late because yeah. I 
I decided to go move up there. These two brothers, Steve and Tim Smith, talked me. You know, they said, come on, go up there with us. And I went up there with them, and we actually were signed as writers together and as a, an artist. We did a production deal with Muscle Shoals Sound as artists as well, well. I can't think of too many better reasons to drop out of college than to be a songwriter. Oh, it, it was, I, 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 I don't regret anything because yeah. I went back and graduated. But, man, it was an incredible time up there. It well, really was. and just for listeners that maybe don't know, Muscle Shoals. So the Stones, uh, let's see, they recorded Brown Sugar and Wild Horses there. Percy Sledge did When a Man Loves a Woman. Mustang Sally, Wilson Pickett, I think, was recorded there. Uh, I'll Take You There, Staple Singers. I believe that was not. Absolutely. I, mean, I know Bob Seger, old-time rock and roll for sure. I think Paul Simon recorded there too, didn't he? He did. He, he do, I think he did There Goes Rhyme and Simon. Uh, Kodachrome was a big oh, hit yeah. from... Yeah, and and I met Bob Seeger there later after I had moved to Nashville. I came back down. I used to come back down like in seventy four, seventy five, and I, I walked in the front office. Diane Butler, who's a great lady, she was managing the studio, and she's sitting there, and Bob Seeger sitting in a chair talking to her. I love he was that. just a, a very, very real guy, very nice guy. I walked in one day in the screen door by the control room and looked in there and I saw the rhythm section. Steve Cropper was playing guitar and Rod Stewart was in the vocal booth and he cut, uh, I think, part of Atlantic Crossing there. Okay. He cut It's Not the Spotlight and uh, I've Got to Use My Imagination, which Gladys Knight had a hit with later, I think. Why do you think so much uh, incredible music came out of Muscle Shoals? What was it about that studio or about that environment? Well, it started at another studio. Um, Rick Hall, if you, have you ever seen the documentary Muscle I, Shoals? I have not. I've had probably four dozen people tell me I've got to yeah. watch it, so well, I will watch you it. You know, I'm, I'm bringing it up for you and also your listeners. It's a very special documentary, and the core of it is really um, – it's about the magic in the uh, atmosphere in Muscle Shoals, but it really does focus a lot on Rick Hall, who they would call the father of, of Muscle Shoals. And basically, he, he started a little studio above a, a pharmacy and then later moved it to Avalon and built a cinder block studio where Clarence Carter... Mac Davis, Paul Anka, the Osmond brothers, uh, Tom Jones, uh, Candy Staten, Jimmy Hughes. Uh, the, the, probably the first big hit in Muscle Shoals was cut by Rick Hall by an artist named Arthur Alexander called You Better Move On. And the Stones covered it and had a big record with it. You asked me to give up the only love I've ever had. You better move on. You better move on. I left out the 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 uh, verses, but it's a really special song. And and Rick, it was a first million seller out of Muscle Shoals. And um, the rhythm section, he he built a rhythm section and. And the Muscle Shoals Sound Rhythm Section left Rick Hall. I don't know if you know the story, but no. Jerry Wexler, the other great music man at Atlantic Records who developed the secular career of Aretha Franklin, who cut 
the tracks of her first big secular hit called uh, I Ain't Never Loved a Man the Way I, I Loved You. <laughs> you know that song? I don't I've know never that song, loved a man the way I loved you. I, I love that you keep singing to me, though, Charlie. So keep it up. <laughs> and for the listeners, well, it I, we probably have, we sounds have video awful, too, but it's so. it's a, it's a way to communicate. <laughs> no, but, no. I, but I actually really like your voice, and we're going to get to that because we're going to play some of your tracks. Well, well I, what I was saying though is the rhythm section at Rick Hall Studio, they had uh, they wanted to to grow and and become their own people. Okay. And Jerry Wexler enabled them to start Muscle Shoals Sound. So they went and bought this building on Jackson Highway, but they were the musicians that played on a lot of the Aretha hits. And and they they broke away from recall and, and became successful in their own right. Well, and I have a very special place in my heart for Atlantic Records because my all-time favorite band is Led Zeppelin. And uh, oh my God. without Atlantic, I don't know. I, my guess is they were good enough. They would have wound up somewhere. But I know that relationship they had with Atlantic was very special. I'm not sure. I have a feeling that might have been the brilliance of Ahmed Erdogan. It could have been Jerry Wexler. But, but you know, Jerry was the guy that, that de- developed um, Aretha's whole career. He cut, he produced all those. And Wilson Pickett. And, you know, Wilson Pickett cut a lot of his hits at Rick Hall studio. Okay. And, you know, so it was all a big hybrid situation in Muscle Shoals. But but Jerry Wexler also cut Wilson Pickett hits in Memphis at Stax Records. He was a, a real, you know, they, you know, there was a big overlap with Memphis and Muscle Shoals. Otis Redding was picked up by there was some sort of deal that Atlantic was responsible for there. And the other music man out of that Atlantic family was a wonderful man, Tom Dowd. And he's the guy that was instrumental in helping these studios in the South get multi-track recorders. Hmm. He was very instrumental in the development of, of you know, more than two track. And I think Tom Dowd, who actually worked as one of the people on the Manhattan Project in New York. And he went on to produce uh, great records by the Allman Brothers and Eric Clapton and, you know, just amazing other other big people too, so I'm, Tom Dowd. I'm actually old enough. When I uh, was first in a studio, we, it was reel-to-reel. It was tape. Right. Um, <clears throat> Charlie, you sent me a couple tracks, uh, Lucky Charm, and what a life! And uh, we're going to play them for the listeners. But I wanted to ask you first of all: are, have are those something new that you've recently written? Or are those older tracks for you? Or? Well, I have a great story about Lucky Charm. Um, what a life is really an autobiographical song about right. my wife and I. And um, you know, I mentioned a lot of places that we've been lucky enough to travel to. That's something that that really came to me one day playing my father's piano. The other song, it's kind of interesting. It's a year old and I can remember now, it's a little over a year old because our middle grandson, Chase, who's now 13, in in uh, November of 2019, before COVID hit, he was spending the night with us and he was sitting at the piano and he played this lick. Uh-huh. And 
it was really an interesting lick to me. And, it, you know, it was like 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night and Janice and I were sitting in there and and I started listening to him and I, I went over and sat next to him and I said, I, you're, you're inspiring me. You're, <laughs> you're like my lucky charm, Chase. And, <laughs> and uh, that's where that came from. And I sat down and came up with this progression and told him where to play that lick. And it's in every chorus. Okay. And, and then I ended up coming up with words after the fact, but the progression he inspired me to create this kind of progression. So whether or not the song is ever heard by anybody, I, I really, I, I love it. And when my friend Keanu has a little studio in Manhattan. So about January of two, 2020, Chase and his older brother, Tyler, who's now 16 and a half, and he's been playing the guitar of some. Okay. They came with me to the studio, and I knew that oh. Chase was going to play the piano. Yeah. And so I put on a you know synth bass, and Chase played the lick, and I played the chords on the piano. And, um, and Keanu Kim is the guy that he sort of put the sounds together and came up with the, the percussive track. And after we got the track done, you know, I said, Tyler, why don't you go in there and see if you can put in a little guitar thing in the instrumental section? And yeah. he said, I don't know if I want to do it. I said, and Keanu was great. We both said, Tyler, no harm, no foul. If you don't, if you yeah. don't like what you're doing or we don't think it works, we'll just go on. And he went out there and he started playing around and Keanu had this great sound on the guitar and we looked at each other after a while and said, man, that works. Yeah. So not only is Chase playing on the recording, but Tyler's playing the guitars. Oh, that, that's gotta be really fun to be playing. So is your, grand, oh, your grandkids in, right? Is that what you're Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. So, and at the time they were 12 and, and 15 and now they're 16 and 13 and 14. Well, then it's, it's even more impressive uh, having heard the track. So let, well, let's listen to it now and so our, our audience can hear what we're talking about. This is Charlie Feldman's Lucky Charm. In the
on this song and it, it's funny that the song started um, with your your grandson playing a, a riff on the piano and that inspired you because I think I already shared with you I, I you sent these tracks and first time with Lucky Charm uh, when it started I'm like oh my god that's uh, Johnny Cash I mean it just totally sounded like Johnny Cash and a Johnny Cash vibe and I loved it and I, and I stopped the song about 30 seconds in because my studio is actually outside of my house it's in a casita I ran into the house because it was, it was kind of late at night. I think my wife was already in bed. And I said, you got to get up. You got to come hear this. And she's like, well, she figured it was something I was doing. She's like, oh, you can just play it for me later. And I said, well, I can, but you got to come hear this. So what happened, she came out and I, I had to grab one of my guitars to kind of move it out of her way. My studio is not real large and she's got a beanbag she has to sit in, which takes up half the floor. So I moved the guitar. Guitar's in my lap. And I go, all right, listen to this. And I hit play. And all of a sudden, I felt inspired as I was listening to the song. And I started playing a whole bunch of guitar parts, which I sent to you, not with any intent that you'd use them. I think I was just more sharing that, you know, this song really 
really hit me in a way that I, because I don't usually do that. I don't bother. Somebody sends me a song, I listen to it. I'm like, okay, that's great. I might have, I might hear things because I do, you know, I'm a producer and I'm a musician, but I literally was like, I just got, I got to play this part. I got to, re- I even got to record this along with the song. So my version has uh, your grandson and I both playing guitar. <laughs> uh, that's funny, man. That's great. But um, I'm I- flattered that you wanted your wife to hear it too. And it's funny because the original key, when we were in Keanu's studio, the range is such that the chorus in, in the key was so hard to sing for me. I like to write songs and right. play around, but I'm not trying to be an artist, but we, we lowered the key a half step okay, so that I could do the low part. And, and probably that's why the verse, you're not the first person that said, God, that kind of reminds me of Johnny Cash. Cause in the verse, he goes in the middle of the night, I hear you calling me. Yeah. You know, it's down in a low register and it, in the original key, it wasn't that low, but because I couldn't sing the chorus, it was so high in the studio. Now I can sing the the melody in the in the chorus. Anyway, just a little side well, story about it. But. No, and I, and I always love hearing the background behind a song because the other thing too, Lucky Charm. I immediately thought, oh, Charlie's you know writing this is a love song for his wife. Um, but actually, the Lucky Charm is your grandson then. Well, that's where it came from. Uh, you know, he inspired me that night, and I just said, man, you're my lucky charm. <laughs> you know, we're on to something here. Yeah. And so I, I thought, wow. But, you know, the words in the song, I always relate to my wife because this sounds corny, but I was married once before, and I had been with other women in my life, just like women and men are with each other right. as they develop. But I've never really felt the deep love that I've learned that I learned to feel with my wife, you know? And so every time I write something like that, it's with her in mind, you know, and that's kind of corny, but it's really the truth. And that concludes part one of my conversation with Charlie Feldman. Uh, Charlie was so gracious when we talked so long that day, it's actually become three episodes. So you just heard the first of, of what is now, uh, three parts uh, to this conversation. In parts two and three, Charlie continues to talk about the process of writing songs, his experience in that industry. Um, really just continues to share his experience, strengths, hopes, passion for music and the people who create music. And we also get to listen to some more tracks of Charlie's. Uh, we concluded that conversation uh, with the decision that we would get together again because <laughs> there was so much more. Uh, I think that Charlie would like to share and so many more questions that I had for him. And so I would offer to anybody listening, please feel free to email me at tim.outoftheether at gmail.com. Again, that's tim.outoftheether at gmail.com with any questions you might have for Charlie. And uh, I'll compile all those and get them together and uh, make it part of our next conversation for future episodes. So please uh, join us next week for part two of our conversation with Charlie Feldman. ¶¶